0: This is The East TraumaCast, Trauma with your moderators, Kevin Pei from the Yale School of Medicine, Dave Morris from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota,
1: and Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center.
0: This program brought to you by
1: the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of
0: Trauma, advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. Welcome to TraumaCast. Uh, This is Kevin Pay, your moderator, and along with me, uh, who's gotten up very early on the West Coast, is Matt Martin, the co-moderator. Good morning, Matt, how you doing? Oh, great, half
1: awake, but I'm here.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we have the privilege of having Dr. Howard Champion, who is no stranger to East. Um, Many of you will know Dr. Champion is a founding member of East in 1987, and very instrumental in giving the young trauma surgeon a national uh, platform and I'm sure many of you know his Champion Trauma Score. Uh, he was a longtime Chief of Trauma at Washington Hospital Center in Washington, D.C. and uh, very interestingly in 2001, Dr. Champion founded SimQuest, which is a leading provider of simulation training platforms. Good morning, Howard, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. Um, you know, Howard, um, so I, simulation is at, at the forefront of training programs across the country. I think we know that through many, many specialties. and. I want to start the conversation off by asking you, what do you think sparked this movement and what do you think might be some limitations of the current training paradigm for uh, general surgeons?
2: It's a big topic you've just entered there. Um, I think uh, we see simulation uh, as a way of... um increasing the experiential learning process <clears throat> that we all need to go through to become competent surgeons. And um, I, I got into it basically because of my relationships with the military, and uh, two-thirds of my trauma service at the uh, Washington Hospital Center was staffed by residents and faculty from uh, Walter Reed and Bethesda, and we were able to expose them to the thought processes or trauma, but uh, when they were deployed, there was still an experiential gap because we, we we treated very few explosion wounds, and so I began looking in the 90s, late 90s of, of ways of um, uh, bridging the experiential gap um, in um, training for military surgeons and then have... Uh, Uh, looked more and more at the experiential gap needs of surgeons in general, Um, working with a number of of disciplines because uh, uh, we have challenges in training where technology can be brought to bear to improve the process, uh, increase its uh, objectivity in terms of assessment, um, and uh, bring greater uh, transparency to the whole process so that we know and the public know um, that the surgeon who is pumped out at the end of the training program is uh, competent and safe um, to practice. So I see technology in general and simulation in particular as a um, as a bridge uh, to uh, uh, improve the scope uh, of training, and also to document, in an objective fashion, uh, the levels of knowledge and skills that the individual surgeon has.
0: Do you Do you have any specific examples where um, there where you noticed an exper- uh, experiential gap, uh, and where simulation or technology may have filled that gap, uh, in terms of uh, addressing the competency of the trainee?
2: Gaps all over the place. Uh, at the present time, there is a uh, JAX entitled "Who will be able to perform open biliary surgery in 2025?" Identifying that um, individuals were graduating, having done three open laparotomies uh, from graduating general surgical training programmes. Uh, one of the biggest complaints we, or concerns we had expressed by deployed surgeons over the past decade was the. Level of skill in vascular access and vascular procedures. Um, I mean, if you're a breast surgeon in uh, El Paso or a colorectal surgeon at Walter Reed, you don't necessarily, and uh, you're deployed, you don't necessarily have that that skill set when you're sent to uh, Afghanistan. Uh, I think that every Specialty has its own set of uh, gaps in experiential, uh, getting access to and acquiring the skills that they would really like to have uh, during the process of training. Uh, take endovascular procedures. We've, uh, they've increased in number. The, uh, the number of um, open vascular procedures has decreased. Uh, trauma often requires open vascular uh, uh, access and uh, manoeuvres, um, and it's not always readily available in a timely fashion. You talk to some of the big trauma centres, and they pull their hair out when they <laughs> to try and find somebody who's uh, who's able to uh, do some of the um, procedures that they need. And then there's training on endovascular procedures. There's probably five general trauma surgeons with uh, good competence in endovascular procedures, Um, and I know three of them. Um, They're they're a very rare species. And the training (laughs) for endovascular procedures is competed for by interventional cardiologists, interventional radiologists, vascular surgeons, as well as uh, trauma surgeons. So those are just a few examples of a huge um, challenge um, to Provide a, a surgeon during a training period a set of skills and uh, experiential exposure of sufficient quantity to uh, to uh, be safe and comfortable in autonomous practice um, when they leave the program, which for a lot of people, about a thousand of them, is next week.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely.
2: There was another paper I'll just refer you to. Uh, uh, published recently, Um, here it is, entitled Correlation Between Experience Targets and Competence for General Surgery Certification. That was uh, published in the British Journal of Surgery earlier this year, and it uh, used a variety of assessment tools to see if uh, people graduating from general surgical training programs met uh, the number of procedures they did correlated with the measures of uh, proficiency that uh, have been put forward based on the number of recommended, um, recommended cases. Um, uh, and uh, their conclusion is that the minimum number of index procedures did not reflect competence in a significant proportion of trainees. A more reliable tool is required for certification. that's a big issue. And they were looking at, uh, I think, cholecystectomy, colectomy, and one other one. Um, Hartman's procedure, cholecystectomy, colectomy. So, you know, I don't think anybody says there's no problem. I think everybody's concerned at the present time.
0: Yeah, that, that's very interesting that, the finding from the british journal where I think m- m- for a long time our, our uh, surgical faculty have always said it, it should be about maybe quality less than uh, more so than uh, quantity and I think the number of index cases like you were saying uh, did not do not automatically grant you competency in that in that uh, in that procedure
2: and there's also the tools uh, that we're using to measure competencies you know there's about Somewhere between twelve and twenty <laughs> different yeah. way of tools, uh, but they are all subjective, and uh, the inter and intra-rater reliability of them uh, is not good, and very costly for faculty to make these assessments.
1: So, Howard, uh, this is Matt Martin. Quick question: So, so what do you say to those those people who say, "Well, you know," but outside, outside of the military environment? Uh, you know, maybe it's not that important that they know how to do an open biliary case. You know, if they're going to be in the U.S. where there's always subspecialists around and there's ERCP, you know, and, and everything, it, is it even important that we train well-rounded general surgeons anymore with with the area, oh, area of subspecialization?
2: Yeah. Oh, I'd say absolutely, and I, th- I think uh, your frame of reference is urban Academia, um, or you know, where you've got uh, resources to draw upon, but uh, you know, I think military surgeons, rural surgeons, and surgeons, you know, old-fashioned general surgeons, uh, are are a uh, do have the need to be able to convert uh, and not uh, sort of hang around to do so. You know, if you've done two or three uh, two or three open procedures on the abdomen in your life, uh, I wouldn't want to be your fourth, uh, quite frankly. And uh, I don't think we should be putting people out there and calling them and certifying them in general surgery uh, if uh, they can't convert from um, coley to an open um, when things go pear-shaped. Um, so I, I don't think, um, now, I mean, there is the argument, Matt, of course, that, you know, you should choose your specialty earlier. Um, and the need to converse or, uh, you know, get back up sort of thing is not very common. But that risk needs to be covered from a patient care point of view. And it's nice to know your surgeon has that level of competence. I mean, I don't know, if you had surgery recently? I had a hernia repair last year, and I asked uh, the surgeon, how many of these have you done? Uh, and uh, I got a satisfactory answer. But if I'd got uh, a 20, I, I would have walked right out of the door wouldn't you?
1: Oh, I agree. Yeah. I just, I had minor surgery last week. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I definitely agree with that.
2: <laughs> so, you know, I, I think there always will be a need for general surgeons and, uh, you know, the frame of reference of working in the Mayo Clinic where you can do one operation and become really good at it. But you're surrounded knee deep in, you know, highly competent professionals with other bandwidths and other, uh, uh, you know, accessory specialities that you can call upon when you're, out in Eastern Kentucky, you don't have that privilege. And um, just saying, oh, well, I'll fly them into so-and-so is not necessarily um, uh, the, be- the best um, exit strategy for, uh, for uh, when things go belly up.
0: Sure, sure. Um, Howard, you were, you were right there in the beginning of simulation training in medicine, and I, I wonder over the last many years, what do, you, what do you see has changed in terms of simulation for uh, tr- uh, surgery training?
2: There's a lot in the change. We've gone through a couple of generations of uh, development at the present time, and um, uh, there's a lot of simulation out there, uh, and a lot of people don't know how to use it. So the current problems, I've published somewhere in the past year or two, uh, uh, A, it's costly, B, they're not driven by end users, C, they're not uh, in, uh, in integrated into curriculum in a meaning, curricula in a meaningful fashion. Um, and a lot of people who really use and try to use simulators uh, find that the, uh, you're actually learning more about how to use the simulator and achieve some goals related to the simulator than um, learning the procedure. Uh, and uh, the scope and nature of the training is somewhat limited. So we're, we're in the process of um, um, changing all of that, uh, partially because of computational power, partially because of the uh, readily, ready availability of, biof- uh, of, of um, biofidel- the biofidelic material properties in the tissues that we are using. Uh, new haptic devices have been created where you can actually change the instruments really quickly. So if you're doing a, a lap coli uh, in a virtual space, you can change your tools. Um, and uh, just as you would in normal uh, normal procedure. That also means that the big expensive bit of simulator um, uh, can be used for multiple procedures instead of buying one simulator for different procedures, um, one simulator for each procedure. Um, <clears throat> I think the metrics um, have improved so that um, the uh, they are meaningful uh, because they're being driven by surgeons who train surgeons and trainees. Um, uh, benchmarking has become better. Um, and the other thing that is being integrated into the simulation is the process of knowledge engineering. In other words, it's not just a simulator, but um, it um, brings uh, advanced learning technologies into play. So the one, for instance, I'll, let me give you an example. We've got a uh, NIH funded open vascular simulator that we're building. and We had it down at the S- Society of Vascular Surgery in um, pre-prototype format about 10 days ago. And um, about 60 odd surgeons, um, Uh, test drove it for us. Uh, The process that we've developed for that is uh, we we went through about four or five iterations of developing appropriate metrics. Uh, You don't need faculty to actually then judge the individual uh, because it's all digital. Um, We benchmarked the procedure of end-to-end anastomosis by making videos at USC with uh, Dimitri and Kenji uh, on um, fresh perfused cadavers, and then have individuals rate the performance of those uh, individuals performing the procedure. and We have novices through to experts doing them so you can actually visualize and refine your metrics based on this benchmarking process, and then uh, you integrate the uh, metrics into the uh, into the process of simulation. So that's how you get started. Then you need about 50 case scenarios. Uh, bring into play real-time online uh, display of those metrics. So let's say we end up with six metrics. They'll be constantly displayed as you're doing the procedure. Um, It could be where you're putting the needle relative to the edge uh, of the uh, artery and the distance from the last um, suture you put in, things like that. Um, Hand movement is always uh, put forward as something of potential value. So anyway, the, the metrics are then integrated so you get a little display on the screen and it gives you all your metrics there. And if you're really not doing well, the adaptive learning system says, okay, guy, let's stop this uh, and put you into remedial didactics or into a simpler case or to just a bit of a case where you can practice and come up with that metric. So ultimately, you've got unconstrained practice, adaptive learning, multiple scenarios of various difficulties that will help you learn quickly And if you're good and you know what you're doing and you score well, boom, you just go straight through and on to the next task. Um, So this whole process of of, uh, unconstrained practice, screw up up as much as you want, as long as we can debrief you and and focus your training on the bit you need, not the bit you don't need, uh, is going to change the whole paradigm of training. Do do 50 of these before and show a scorecard which is printed out uh, of your metrics to your mentor and say, look, I've done 50 of these, here's my score, can I come into the operating room and do your next one with you, sort of thing. So it's, a, it's, it's, it's gonna hugely impact the efficiency and effectiveness of training, at least that's where I see it going.
0: Do you ever see the potential of uh, such scenarios and in, in assessment of skill and competency as you've described becoming part of an attendings credentialing package. You know, you gotta go to a new hospital, you gotta demonstrate these things on on a simulator before you're allowed to do it on patients.
2: Yeah, and uh, it's it's already happening to some degree with new um, devices. Um, So we built a simulator for a company. They uh, are clearing their new piece of kit, their new device for doing a specific procedure. It's embargoed, so I can't say too much about it, but through the FDA. So they're going through the FDA with it, but they had us build a simulator. So when that gets onto the marketplace, they've got a simulator put next to it, and you can screw up as much as you want, and uh, it's been vetted by the specialty. They decided on the metrics. They thought, wow, you know. And then out comes a piece of paper, show it to your credentialing body, say, Here's a new, new piece of kit I want you to buy. By the way, I can use it. Um, I've done 50 of these. I've done 75 of these. Here is my final score, uh, adjudicated by the American Society, blah-de-blah-de-blah, blah, blah, blah. Um, credential me for doing this in your institutions. Mm. That's, That's interesting. where interesting. You know, and, you know, when, when you get too old and your nystagmus is has to match your tremor. You know, maybe it's going to be good for <laughs> a 75-year-old surgeon. I don't know. <laughs> that,
0: that seems like it will be controversial, <laughs> very oh, controversial. Yeah,
2: that, yeah, that, that is for sure. But, you know, again, that's the topic of, uh, you know, when should old farts like me sort of hang up their scalpel? Um, and, you know, it's a very individual thing, and I don't think, um, you know, a cookie cutter um, with, without some metrics exposure. Now people have to go through... All sorts of cognitive assessments and, and review of and, and things uh, once they get over sixty-five in many institutions, and you know it's sort of it's a difficult and burdensome process for both the institution and the individual.
0: All right. Uh, yeah. So I'm actually I'm really interested um, with with your experience with the military, and and certainly Matt and will probably be able to chime in as well with his um, obviously obviously experience in military healthcare, but. Um, What's going on with uh, simulation in the military and what, what kind of projects are you working on? And particularly, how do you address the austere environments? Obviously, they're not in a, you know, they're not necessarily in a controlled environment as we are in civilian practice all the time.
2: You know, I think it's going through a big flux at the present time. And the Institute of Medicine put out a report, you know, knitting together in a better fashion the uh, military and civilian training programs uh, specifically to allow for transportation of lessons learned in combat into the civilian trauma and for preparing uh, military surgeons for deployment. Um, And that, you can uh, uh, obtain that online at IOM. Um, uh, I I think uh, there's a greater understanding of where we are at the present time. Uh, uh, But in the military there's been a sort of focus Correctly, so, um, point of wounding pre hospital care, if you like, because that 's where ninety percent of the deaths are and um, in the papers we've published um, showing that there are there always will be, and that there are targets of opportunity in terms of preventable deaths, many related to hemorrhage, uh, and so hemorrhage control, as taught at uh, DCMT in San Antonio. Um, is what the basic uh, emt 91 68 um, uh, learns, and that's very bread-and-butter training. The refresher training is done at uh, uh, military training simulation centers, MSTCs, simulation training centers, um, and there are about 30-plus of those around, and they um, are uh, moving towards uh, improving their consistency uh, between them and curriculum and moving towards um, greater use of simulation. But a lot of the simulation tools are not all that good. They're physical models, no embedded metrics, faculty intense, and so they're uh, pre-next generation um, for training. And none of them have knowledge engineering wrapped into them. So I think um, we can anticipate five years from now, certainly ten years from now, a huge difference. Uh, The military is Fantastic at training in non-medical things. You know, uh, you you know your unit has got to um, be certified before it's deployed. They teach you how to drive tanks, fly airplanes, land on carriers, shoot—all uh, with the, a greater level of intensity, intensity transparency, and objectivity than um, uh, training people for medical care. So, Matt, you you might. You're, you're, you're probably closer to some of this stuff than I am. I don't know if you've got anything to embellish my high-altitude view there, but I see it as a huge target of opportunity and I'm working to try and mobilize that. But I'd, be, you know, I'd value your thoughts as well.
1: Oh yeah, I, I agree with what you said 100%. You know, our, I think our big issues now are, are, are one, training to competency to be able to deploy to an austere environment, and, and you may be the only surgeon there. So, you know, you don't have a choice of getting an RSTP or, or some other bailout. Yeah. Uh, and then the other big piece is maintenance of skills. Because, yep. you know, unlike the civilian environment where, you know, you, you can be a breast surgeon where that's all you do, uh, every military surgeon has to do their primary job, which may be a breast surgeon, but then they also have to be a battlefield surgeon if they get called upon to deploy. So they... The maintenance of skills, especially as you know the the wars draw down and we lose that that depth of experience because everyone was deploying, you know that's probably the the number one issue now facing military surgeons. Uh, so so Howard, do you, I mean, do you see the simulation getting to the point where you, you could have someone, let's say, you know they're they're a breast surgeon and they don't really do any trauma care, but then they need to you know they need to be ready for a deployment. Uh, I mean, do you see the the simulation technology being at the point where that could meaningfully impact their readiness for for trauma care.
2: Oh, absolutely! Yeah, I mean, and it doesn't have to be you know virtual reality, augmented reality. We could put, you know we we could put a thousand uh, combat cases onto an advanced learning module just to exercise the brain on the cognitive skill side of things. That 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 could be easily done. It's just a question of uh, willpower and, and money to do that. So, you know, anybody in the military could spend an hour or two a week sort of going through a number of scenarios and keeping a score um, to show that they are maintaining uh, their uh, skill set in uh, cognitive in knowledge and complex decision-making, uh, particularly complex decision-making in resource-constrained environments. Um, and that... that that is a training tool that could be available ten years ago, but uh, apart from the fact that we didn't have the um, scenarios, but it certainly is available now. The simulators themselves um, are not there yet either, but you know there's interest in uh, building an ex-fix simulator. We built a burrhole one, but the army don't want that uh, now because you know, it was built basically for Afghanistan. Uh, the other thing that people would like to be trained on is. Uh, uh, complex rapid vascular access anywhere in the body. Um, that's the course I used to teach at the Royal College of Surgeons in London. And uh, you know, I remember teaching it once with Bill Blystow, Um And uh, you know, he, he basically laid open every single major vessel <laughs> in the body over a period of about half an hour. It was just a, um, a wonderful to watch him do it and to te- for him to teach. Uh, I think we did that course at Travis. Um, out there near um, um, near where he uh, was practicing, but you know there, there there is the potential. Is it there now, Matt? No, it's not. Um, and the simulators are not as good, and they're driven more by technologists than by um, by the end user needs being carefully integrated into the planning of simulators. But it can certainly happen, and it could happen within five years.
1: And you mentioned you know the cost and needing to be willing to spend the money. Maybe you can comment real quickly on the the cost effectiveness of of simulation, and and is it cost effective if you know you know every program has to you know build a simulation center and different simulators for you know different procedures. Uh, you know, we're talking about a huge investment here, so so maybe you could talk about the cost effectiveness of simulation.
2: Well, yeah, let's talk about the cost first because that, that is a big issue. You're absolutely correct. You know, a, sort of a single task trainer simulator now runs somewhere, I don't know, maybe 100 to 250K. But the cost is gonna come down. <clears throat> the uh, army funded us to put a lot of our uh, simulation software on open source. And so we have got uh, about two hundred and fifty thousand kilo lines of code are um, uh, clocks um, on an open source platform called OSS open surgical simulation uh, for which <clears throat> is available to um, people who, who want to build simulators um, now the army's done that it is very very good and it reduces the cost of creating a simulator by somewhere between 40 and 60% because you don't have to start writing the code all over again, the code is there and it's robust. So uh, that's gonna be a big factor in getting the simulators. The other big factor is the haptics. Um, uh, They have hugely improved um, to the degree, uh, particularly with the uh, interchangeability of instruments as being part of it. So now you've got um, surgically created Haptics, (laughs) Haptics, <laughs> which uh, you can use, you can put any instrument in, and then you just have to build a virtual environment, case scenarios, and get the advanced knowledge engineering in there, and you've got your simulator. So the cost theoretically is come down to about 30 to 40 percent. Um, so that's cost. Now cost effectiveness, um, where you've got individual, if you if you use advanced learning technologies, you know the real time assessment, adaptive learning, case scenario driven, da di da di da. Um, as long as the metrics are created by uh, knowledgeable faculty. Um, you're talking about autonomous practice, you know, untethered practice. You can do as many case scenarios as you want. When we get, you know, 50 scenarios in there, um, you, can, you can make it pretty difficult for uh, an individual to do a case. The IV simulator we built had 400 scenarios in it. Um, and, um, uh, if you think you can put an IV up, oh, okay, all fine and dandy. You know, we'll find one that you can't. <laughs> you know, the guy was a drug dealer, and all the vessels in his um, uh, armor are uh, solid little bits of rope. Um, so uh, you know, it's, it's possible to challenge everybody, and it can all be done online. Metrics are online. You don't need a faculty over your shoulder. Um, And that's going to, therefore, increase the effectiveness, transparency, and ultimately reduce the cost um, of training. The other thing that everybody's thinking about is why why do we do five years for training? Why don't we just train to proficiency? Um, And if you become a proficient surgeon and can document it in an objective fashion uh, in a number of dimensions in one year, why not certify you then? And there's no good reason for not doing so. The other thing we've been discussing a lot is, why do we have five ways of doing something? Why do we have to allow people to be taught the mass general approach to doing (coughs) a uh, bowel anastomosis as opposed to the Hopkins way of doing a bowel anastomosis? Oh, we don't do it like that here sort of crap. You know, all we should be training people is to do it one way safely (coughs) and (coughs) objectively assess their ability to do that. They want to change it and put that little twerk in when they're out in practice. That's fine and dandy as long as it's safe. But why do we have all these different ways of doing things? All of those things are in play.
0: To piggyback off of um, Matt's question about the resources that um, that, uh, you have to have for for a high fidelity model or for whatever procedure you're talking about. You know, for any other practice um, changing things that we do in medicine, we always wanna make sure that it's something that ultimately benefits our patients. And I'm wondering, um, what's your view on it? You know, has simulation training, has it, has it been documented to improve patient outcomes and or and/or patient experience? And, and if not, then, you know, what would be the motivation to continue down this line of simulation training?
2: Yeah, I think there's been a number of studies out there that have shown that there are less errors uh, when simulation is part of the knowledge and skill acquisition process. So I don't think anybody disagrees about that at the present time. Using patient outcome as a dependent variable is a little bit tricky. Um, And people, the other problem is that people throw around the term validation Mm -hmm. with gay abandon. Um, And, uh, you know, a lot of the so-called uh, validation studies are um, hogwash. There, you know, there uh, there are the validities are face validity, content, construct, concurrent, predictive, and external. When people talk about validating a simulator, they're uh, often just talking about face and content validity. In other words, um, um, you know, is the right stuff being taught? Uh, are the metrics credible? Uh, Construct validity is the next they bring in here, which shows a difference between um, uh, a novice and uh, an expert, uh, that sort of thing. But most of the other concurrent, predictive, and external validity are not properly assessed because they're fairly expensive to do so, and it's also very important with respect to um, uh, patient patient safety uh, as a dependent variable or patient outcome. Uh, And not not a lot of those studies have been done, but I think we can agree that if you make fewer errors because you've done it 20 times on a simulator, that that is probably going to contribute to your uh, safety on on patients. Uh, It's a very complex area, and it's treated in a a glib fashion uh, by a lot of people who are trying to market simulators.
1: So let me ask this question to, to both of you. Uh, you talked a lot about you know the benefits of simulation. What do you see? What have you seen? The ways are the ways simulation has been used wrongly uh, or in, integrated you know incorrectly into some of our training programs. And, and I know I have I have several thoughts on this. I'm wondering uh, what, what both of your experiences been.
2: You know, people keep churning out the flight simulator analogy, and uh, there was an article in paper a few years ago about a particular flight simulator that taught you in a fashion that if uh, you confronted a certain problem, you were guaranteed to crash the plane. So simulators, uh, the biggest issue is people build these simulation centers and then do not modify the curriculum. You need to modify your training curriculum to accommodate the value of technology in the process. And they're not used in a fashion which does that. Um, uh, Some of them are very limited. Um, And a lot of the endovascular ones, for instance, are do not train the specific skills that the trainee or the trainer wants them to train to. So limitations, just one way of doing things, um, and Sometimes it's the wrong thing. Uh, getting into and out of trouble, uh, which is a very common surgical experience, <laughs> um, are not part of the training process. Um, so simulators at the present time are expensive, very limited, and not integrated into training programs. So I, I think we're—I think within the next five years we're gonna see all that change.
0: What do you think, Kevin? So I think that's a really good question. I have a couple of thoughts, too. I, so first of all, I don't. I, I know there are programs that use simulation, which, as Howard said, at this current state, I think is has limited um, limited place in the actual assessment of competency in our residents. And I have actually seen programs where they're they're integrating simulation as a formalized way of assessing their patients. And I think that I think the downfall or the pitfall of that is that. Oftentimes, I don't know about your at your institutions. When we're doing simulation with our residents or trainees, uh, it's a very much a, a checklist mentality. It's, it's saying you know you got to do boom, 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 boom these things, and then you're deemed um, as competent. And and uh, it goes back to a, a, a concept that I was going to you know ask you guys about about later, which is the fidelity of the simulation. Many of the residents always say we come out of the, we come out of the simulation for a um, MVC, hemodynamically unstable patient, and yet when I finish this scenario, it doesn't feel real, and my concern about using a scenario like this to actually assess the, patient, uh, assess the trainee's competency, I don't know that it's ready for prime time yet, and so that's, I guess that's my thought about it.
1: Yeah, and, uh, and I, would, I would highlight what you said earlier, Howard, about you know, so- sometimes it's training them to, to do the simulator, or to play the game. Yeah, uh, And I know yeah. we, we've had this issue of, you know, well they'll send the residents over to the simulation center and say, you know, uh, go over there and, and practice on the laparoscopic simulator before you do this, you know, lap coli. Yeah. And then they'll come in to do it, and they'll have, not only will it not have prepared them, they'll have picked up some bad habits that, you know, nobody was supervising them on the simulator. Yeah. And, and then you have to unteach those in addition to, to teach them how to do the procedure. Uh, yeah, so, so how do we avoid that?
2: You're absolutely right. Well, I mean, the thing is the simulator has got to be conceived by the trainers, not by engineers, okay? If <laughs> you say, I want to build a lab-coaling simulator, um, then the, they sh- the engineers, uh, there's all sorts of engineering trade-offs. You know, I've got bright guys, PhDs from Harvard, building our stuff, but we sit down with um, the uh, subject matter experts before we do anything. Um, and they, you know, we've got a sort of set set of questions. You know, what is your training goal? Um, what are your metrics? What are the common errors? That you know, start from there, and get everybody to agree or as much as you can on that, and then start making some engineering trade-offs to achieve that in a cost-effective. Um, a fashion book. So
0: we we use simulation a lot for uh, concrete I think concrete technical assessment t- technical competency. Well, mainly because we're surgeons. But what do you what are your thoughts about sort of the, the quote unquote softer sciences? For example, uh, you're on surgical critical care rotation, and we send the trainees to the simulation lab, and we have a scenario on end of life discussions. Well, what do you think about what what's the utility in those type of Scenarios.
2: I think they can be they can be very powerful I think again this is an example where <clears throat> the best practices or best of breed processes for going through some of these things can reach a wider audience um, and um, the <clears throat> if uh, a properly constructed process for conveying that knowledge and educating you know this I get Back to this advanced learning technologies, knowledge engineering, which is not used very much in medicine at all. Um, I mean, I know the score process uh, at the American Board of Surgery is moving in that direction. But um, I think that the, the technologies and get even even adult games can be very useful and powerful for some of the um, for the non-technical components of things. And uh, you know, people always. Front, uh, emphasize decision-making, complex decision-making, and and that's one area that, that where it can contribute. If you don't mind me going back, is the debate about fidelity. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, we don't really know uh, how important fidelity is, but it is important up to a certain point. Um, it's uh, But it's, it's, it's easy for engineers to over-engineer some of these things, and I think Matching the fidelity to the training task is one of the subtasks that has to be incorporated into the development of a simulator. Now, we're in the process of digitizing the the, uh, FLS course uh, with another open-source company called Kitware. That's another NIH proposed grant. But, you know, it always strikes me as pretty crazy that, you know, that basic pegboard thing is used as a... Uh, as a uh, training process for, say, lab college. You know, we can do better than that, don't you think? Mm-hmm. Um, so fidelity has a role. Now, I've had conversations in the past week or two about too much fidelity being bad for training, and I've never been, I haven't been able to find the source of that. Somebody put that forward, and I don't think that's necessarily true. if if all the other uh, aspects of training are taken into account. But I think people, when when the trainee has to spend less time being distracted or suspending belief, uh, they are more comfortable in the knowledge acquisition process um, than than dealing with a a very low fidelity environment. Um, it, it, It feels a bit real to them and so the fidelity you know has got two dimensions one is visual and the other is uh, the um, material properties and realism of the procedure they're doing and uh, i think all of those are now taken into account to a better degree than they were and i think they will improve the process generally speaking
0: that's actually a really interesting point about um, performance it's almost a concept, of, a concept of performance anxiety and i think there is some evidence that um uh, these c- simulation scenarios that have high fidelity to real clinical scenarios where our trainees or or participants actually do better because they have less performance anxiety because because it is uh closer to to their daily experience is that is that kind of what you're saying
2: Yeah uh, yes um but you know th- then uh you know there's a big debate um about live tissue training, particularly for uh, the special forces, where they they still feel that it's more real to um, operate on a goat or do a crike on a goat than it it is on a simulator, and part of it, uh, because there's no decent crike training simulator, but they swear to the the fact that they've got a bleeding can-die type of situation in front of them that it uh, improves their training, so um, I think we need better simulators and then reevaluate that process
1: so howard if you had to pick the you know one or two big advances we're going to see that's going to change simulation you know say in the next five to ten years what do you think those are going to be uh,
2: well, I think we're going to see um what I call end user driven simulators that are much less cost, in other words that driven by the training goals, not by engineers per se. And uh, I think we'll see such simulators wrapped in advanced knowledge engineering, which was the next big step, um, comprised maybe 25% of the knowledge and skill and assessment uh, knowledge and skill acquisition and assessment processes, surgical training programs. I'd say at the present time it's somewhere between five and ten percent. It's going to really take off. We need more surgeons. We don't have the training material, and uh, we need to document objectively and transparently that, that transparently that they know what they're doing. And simulators are on the brink of catching up with those needs. That's what I think. <laughs>
0: what well, What about virtual reality? Where is that going? Is there well, a role i, I 'm
2: talking predominantly about virtual reality ah. but when I talk about simulators i 'm not talking about physical models, even censored ones i 'm talking about virtual reality, advanced haptics, advanced knowledge engineering, and i 'm talking about augmented reality uh, where you can actually put your hands into an environment that when it 's necessary to do so, and that can be a censored physical model or it can be a variety of other things but i 'm not talking about standalone Um, uh, physical models that you still require, uh, renewable parts and mentors to stand over somebody. I'm talking about autonomous um, software environments with or without a physical model.
0: I I was just thinking recently because of the, of course, the events in Orlando that, um, and and having recently taught an ATLS course about triage scenarios, and I I thought to myself, boy, you know, we could really train um, people in triage scenarios by by having this virtual reality environment where they're you know as opposed to just talking about it they're literally going through the scenario seeing their surroundings particularly in austere environments and having to make very difficult decisions. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah, We we've actually did one of those a few years ago. It wasn't. It's okay, not not wonderful. Um, uh, Stan Lindquist, a surgeon in uh, uh, Sweden, who's uh, got a uh, mass casualty. Um, training environment which I'm trying to find funds for him to put on a um, into a virtual environment which uh, uh, which is exactly what you're saying um, and expand it to active shooter type of things it that is we're talking about you know decade old technology to do that um, for those things you know active shooter uh, triage it can be game game, um, you know, an out game type of environment would be very good for that. Um, and It's just a question of money to do it. Um, there's a lot of experts would love to do that. Sure. The Committee on Tactical Emergency casualty Care, which is the civilian version of the COTC3 for the military, uh, uh, is hot to trot on some of these things.
0: Um, as, as one of the most important missions of EAST, which is to advance careers, um, I wonder how, how, what advice do you have for somebody who's interested in building a career in simulation and, and surgical residency training? Um, what kind of research can they get involved in? How, how do they take the first step to get to, I guess, where you are?
2: I mean, we've had an awful lot of federal grants uh, to get the technology where it is at the present time, and it's still in prototype form. Uh, and we, we're sort of seeking funds to try and productize a lot of the technologies we've developed and The federal government is very good at doing the R&D, but not when you want to shrink the R and increase the D and do advanced development and productize things. um, That's not their job. So that's where we are at the present time. Find some of the thought leaders um, involved in this and begin networking um, with the thought leaders. Um, uh, There are a number of institutions that are outstanding in the way they're viewing, training, and intelligently applying um, simulation and integrating it with a curriculum. They're, uh, they can be put in contrast to a lot of other places who you know, go and build a simulation center for a couple of million bucks and then don't quite know what to do with it and um, find it's a resource-intensive process uh, that they haven't really thought through. Uh, And so I'd vector away from that. But I think um, the uh, American Board of Surgery, people on that, and people at some of the um, um, leading organizations with a portfolio and commitment through training can vector you into those directions. Uh, And it's really a scholarly pursuit these days. It is not sort of, uh, give me the cash and I'll go and get some simulators. None of the simulators out there cut the mustard at the moment
1: oh, just uh, just want to thank uh, Dr. Champion. Uh, you know, he has been a been a leader in the field of trauma, been a been a good friend to the military and, and now you know he's a, uh, I mean I think a real visionary uh, bringing us into the next wave of simulation.
2: Well, it's good to work with uh, you know people who who are treading this pathway um, you know I think mean, you know your, your simulation center up at Yale uh, is 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 wonderful. Um, so, uh, you know, I work very closely with those. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Yes, <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. You know,
2: that's one that really stands out and the people uh, behind it are thoughtful and uh, forward-looking and uh, uh, not satisfied with the status quo. And, uh, you know, there's plenty of work for a lot of people in this field and uh, the more the merrier, actually. That's why the, the big movement is on op- and towards open source, you know, um, so people don't have to reinvent the wheel every time they want to build these things. But we've
0: got a long way to go. I want to second what Matt said. Um, We really appreciate Dr. Champion's time and expertise, and I can't wait to see how you're going to push the envelope for simulation and uh, surgery training. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast brought to you by the East Online Education Section, the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the east.